this show on climate change. Brought to you by Hip Hop Caucuses. Think 100%. This is the time to look internally, to check yourself. You need to look at who's qualified and stop looking at race, right? But you also need to ask yourself, how many people of color do I have in this organization and why do I have so few? And was it purposeful, right? Was there some unconscious bias or was it deliberate? I don't know. But it's time to make some changes internally, for sure. That was Dr. Adrian Hollis lawyer, scientist, and the senior climate justice and health scientist at the Union of Concerned Scientists. And I am Rev Yearwood, your host of The Coolest Show. Well, first and foremost, listen, I always get excited to talk to my friends uh, in this conversation, particularly those who I know have so much to add to this conversation. So before I, I get we get into it, let me introduce to some and present to others uh, Dr. Adrian Hollis, PhD and JD. So that's just, and it should be another like comma, she's a bad sister, uh, but she is the, Senior Climate Justice and Health Scientist at the Union of Concerned Scientists, and she's the former director of uh, federal policy at We Act for Environmental Justice. Um, I actually want to read her bio because it's so important. Um, it is. No, this is important. We have a lot of uh, young people um, who listen uh, to this, and they need to hear um, so I just want to, if you can indulge me, Dr. Hollis, while I just kind of this, just give me a second while I just read, because she is, has been named one of HuffPost's Black Climate and Social Justice Leaders. Uh, she is just a stalwart in our movement. But Dr. Adrian L. Hollis, I'm not sure if I know what the L stands for. I got to figure out, she got to tell me what the L stands for. But she is the Senior Climate Justice and Health Scientist at the Union of Concerned Scientists, where she leads the development, design, and implementation of methods accessing and documenting the health impacts of climate change on communities of color and other traditionally disenfranchised groups. Prior to joining UCS, which is for the Union of Concerned Scientists, uh, Dr. Hollis served as the director of federal policy at an org that I love very much, We Act for Environmental Justice, and taught at George Washington University Milken School of Public Health and the American University Washington College of Law. With more than 20 years of experience in the environmental field, her work has focused on environmental justice, equity, and inclusion, and the adverse health effects of environmental exposure and climate change on vulnerable communities. Dr. Hollis is a member of numerous organizations and boards, including the EPA's Clean Air Act Advisory Committee, the National Adaptation Forum Steering Committee, 
Um, she's a co-chair and it's Equity Working Group, uh, the American Public Health Association's Environment Section, and the Environmental Justice Subcommittee, the Endangered Species Coalition, Vice Chair and Co-General Counsel, and the Green Leadership Trust, which we share. We, we are both uh, in that awesome organization together. Um, she is a graduate of a black college. Come on, come on, somebody. Come on now at Jackson State University with a BS in biology, a PhD in biomedical sciences from the McHarry Medical College, uh, a JD from Rutgers University School of Law, and completed postdoctoral studies at Harvard University School of Public Health. And with all this She's still down. Like, I'm just going to, we just, I mean, she down, y'all. She's not, you know, she, she ain't been in these spots. Sometimes you get in these spots and you, you kind of, you kind of, you know, you know, you just do that. But she hasn't done, she's, she's not that. She keeps it 100 wherever she is. So without further ado, without further pause, I again welcome Dr. Adrian Hollis, my sister. My sister, how are you? I'm fine. Thank you so much, uh, wherever you would, for that wonderful introduction. Gosh, I, I was wondering who you were talking about. I am so happy to be here. I love being on your show. I love listening to it. And I just listened to your wonderful session with my um, idol and mentor, Dr. Mildred McLean. Well, this, actually, so before we get to uh, Dr. McLean, actually, I have a question because I know, because I think it's important. And for those, you can actually go to, to hear all the podcasts, uh, if you just go to uh, thecoolestshow.com and you can actually hear Dr. McLean and Dr. Wright and so many others who've already uh, just given wisdom. But who is Dr. Adrian Hollis? You know, I'm just um, somebody fighting for what's right, fighting for damn justice, you know? And um, I guess picking up the mantle or sharing it with people who've been in this fight longer than I have. And, and if, when people ask me, I say I'm an environmental justice advocate because I advocate for what's fair. And um, I'm a connector because, you know, we've been traditionally ignored and overlooked. And whenever there's an opportunity, I like to connect communities with those who can be of assistance to them, you know? So I know, for instance, a little bit, of your background and story, because we've been around each other for some time now. But I think it may be good for you to explain why you went through the grueling task of getting a PhD and a JD. What what what, what was what's the backstory on that? Sure, sure, I'll, I'll do it quickly. So I have to go back to my. I was born in Mobile, Alabama. That's as far back as we're gonna go. I'm not gonna say when. <laughs> okay. So in Mobile, you know, we lived in the shadow of the paper mill and, and a lot of other facilities. And you can learn more about that on, um, by getting information on Africatown, um, which is about um, five minutes from my house, my, the home I grew up in and where my mom still lives. But um, that smell was, uh, you know, we were, when everybody complained, of course, as most people were told in other places, that's the smell of money. So stop complaining, right? Because whenever the paper mill ran, of course, they were releasing pollutants and people were getting sick. And I remember my brother and a bunch of other folks who had asthma and we were poor. 
So my mom couldn't always afford medicine. She was a teacher, but it's Alabama, okay? So they weren't making uh, much money, not that they're doing better now. But um, I remember her holding him over the bathtub to let the hot water run and ease his lungs so that he could breathe. And I, that just, it happened a lot, you know, growing up. And I just remember that. And, and one, so two things stand out to me, that and the fact that um, my mom bought me um, a two-piece swimsuit because, you know, when you're a little girl, it's not a bikini, two-piece. And it was my first, um, and it was white. And back then, it was in the, in the 70s, um, there were certain beaches you couldn't go to if you were black. Now, I don't know whether that was official or unofficial, but it was the truth. So we went, I remember going into the water at the beach we could go to, Fairhope Beach, and um, hadn't been in there long. But when I came out, my swimsuit was covered in oil. And, you know, it was, so it never was white again. And, I, and that was the kind of water we swam in, you know. And that was the, you know, those things started stirring in me the, just how unfair it was. And then growing up, there was racism in the school. I keep my yearbook because somebody wrote there in there, you know, and I'll never know who it is, but I keep that close. And, you know, throughout, throughout I guess, my travels or whatever you want to call it, there have been um, incidences of, um, I guess, racism. And so I decided that I was going to, one, be a researcher. You know, my cousin was the first in our family. He worked on the the Manhattan Project. He passed away, but he won't be in most of the history books. Um, Marty Taylor, you won't find him because he's a black man um, who eventually died of cancer the year I graduated high school, so we never met. But that was my impetus to get into the sciences and find out what the heck was going on. And, and I also had questions of fairness, as most young people do, you know, but uh, the times aren't as they are now. I mean, thank God we have the youth today. It's sad that they have to, to be on the front lines like this, but in, it's good to see them, you know? Yeah, so my PhD, you know, I got it from HBCU, uh, Meharry, and um, I, I worked on high-pressure oxygen, like deep sea divers would use and like that. But when I got to Harvard, it changed to look at ozone, which was more impactful to the community as a whole right now, right? I mean, everybody's not going to be exposed to hyperbaric oxygen. But pollution, that's another thing. You know, that's a, a totally different thing, especially in the Black communities and in the communities of color, environmental justice communities. So that's how I changed my research there. And I remember doing a study for them looking at advertising cigarette smoke uh, for kids in black communities and white communities and noting that in the black communities, they placed the advertising at eye level. They made it cool to smoke and just a bunch of different messages, you know, whereas in the white communities, you'd see the signs on top of buildings and just not in the eye range, right? And it wasn't about being cool, you know, it's about in the same way as it was young people hanging around smoking. It was more like the Marlboro Man and things like that. So all of these things kind of, I guess, contributed to putting me on the path that I consider that I'm still on, just, you know, fighting for environmental justice along with others, you know. And um, that includes all the EJ meetings that I miss that they don't have anymore, the conferences uh, where we all got together and you know, you could see your colleagues and people you who are fighting the same battle and, and exchange war stories. And I remember sitting up after meetings and in restaurants, just sitting there talking and laughing and 
and just getting to know people. And I was awed that these people let me sit with them, you know, but it wasn't even about that with them. It was about welcome, you know, another warrior, another, another person to fight this with us, you know, and I appreciated that. I still appreciate that. So I taught, I left, uh, after Harvard, I went to the Agency for Toxic Substances and Disease Registry, where I was a section chief working on um, Superfund sites, you know, sites that, are, that have been identified as needing cleanup by the Environmental Protection Agency and, and the like. And um, I did that for seven years. And as part of that, we were to gather community concerns. And I think that was where my frustration kind of really started, because we were just gathering community concerns for this document. And that was it. I felt like we weren't doing enough. So when I had the opportunity, one of my good friends, Dr. Cynthia Harris at Florida A&M University, invited me to come down there and help start the Institute of Public Health and, and to develop the Occupational and Environmental Health Track. And I jumped at it. You know, it was something about creating a bunch of little Aaron Brockovich, you know, Black Aaron Brockoviches, to go out and, you know, and just fight the good fight. And we did that. Oh my God. We went all over the South and so that we didn't even have money. And I would get the van from the school and, you, you know, it might be six of us in one hotel room, but we went when people asked us to come and they mostly just wanted us to come and listen, right. To their stories. And I have to just quickly say that one night, I know we were in, um, I want to say Ocala and they wanted us to see this facility that would release release pollutants through a smokestack at night. And for some reason I kept the van running and we went to the to take pictures, you know, you could see the flaring and all of that sort of thing. And this guy came out with a gun, right? Like a a, rot, a shotgun and a dog. And he was inside the fence a long way from us, but still. And I didn't say anything to students, <laughs> which is probably not a good thing. I just started running. But I had told them before, if you see me run, you need to be in front of me because I'm not going to have time to, you know, gather y'all up. So when I got to the van, they were all there. <laughs> we were all making it. And I remember driving off and the door was still open and the last person was jumping in. And that just made everybody more determined to, you know, really focus on this issue. Because why are you out there with the shotgun? Because you know what you're doing is killing people. And, you know, that was the beginning of it. And as part of my work there, I started, that's how I met Dr. McClain. And it got to the point where wherever we went and wherever I went, and if I didn't have my students with me, the first question was, where are the students? Because they realized even then how important the youth were, you know, that young voice, that fresh outlook. And uh, my students love to go. And, and sometimes not even my students, other students at the um, Institute of Public Health just wanted to go. And um, I remember having a conversation with Dr. McLean and a bunch of other people. And I said, you know, if you had a choice, like if there was one thing you think you needed right now, one thing, what would it be? And she'll, I'll never forget it. She says, we need lawyers who look like us, who can explain to us what these government people are saying, you know? And I just, I decided I was going to go to law school and be one of these people. Right. And um, it turned out to be a little different, but I think just as important. So, yeah, but she's my impetus, my hero. My hero. I don't know. I, I tell her that, but I'm not sure she believes me to the extent, you know, how much of an impact she had on my uh, life's tra trajectory there. We're gonna make sure she she hears she hears it. She has 
had an impact on many of us. That's Dr. Uh, Mildred McLean, and we're talking with Dr. Adrian Hollis. Um, you know, Dr. Hollis, I guess I want to ask you, um, one, you, you are the epitome of what people would say is black girl magic. Um, you, are, you are that for sure. But in this time that black people are being killed as a lawyer, as a scientist, as a black woman, what, what's your response and to these events? Do you get angry? You, you work? Do you, I mean, how do you handle, what's your take on all this? Well, thank you for the compliment, but there are a lot of other people who I consider to be black girl magic that I look up to, but hey, I'll take it. I'm, I'm angry. Yes, I am angry. I'm angry. I'm fed up. I'm all those things everybody else feels. And I want to I echo everybody. What did you expect? We have all of these things happening right now to us, both historically and in the now. What did you expect? We are human beings. We are people. There was always going to be that straw. You know, um, Mr. Floyd's death, sadly, wasn't the only one, isn't the first one. But we saw it in real time and, and, and we'd had enough. It was the last, you know, the last straw. So, uh, yeah, I'm angry, but I'm not angry to the point of inactivity. My anger spurns activity, right? And, and that means different things to different people. If, you, you know, some, some of us can't be out there marching, although we'd like to. We may be uh, at high risk from uh, COVID-19 or whatever because of our own um, health issues or whatever it is. So we, we, we do what we can, but what we don't do is give up. So when people are crying and, and wondering what to do, we're not crying because um, as my friend Bernice Miller-Travis says, there are no tears in the revolution. <laughs> you know, We don't have time to cry, right? Because there's work to be done and the time is now. I, I tell people to channel that anger and frustration into action and they're doing it. They're doing it all over the globe. I mean, I'm sure you've seen the news. That is so awesome. It blows my mind just to see people in other countries standing up for Black Lives Matter. It is, uh, it is powerful. It is so powerful to see that. Um, and then to see just the, the solidarity of that. I mean, it, uh -huh. al it also means that white supremacy is global, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So it isn't just something in this country, but people are facing that all over the world. Um, what, what does, you know, six years ago we heard um, Eric Garner said, I can't breathe, and now we heard George Floyd say it again. Um, but what does I can't breathe mean to you? That's such a good question. Um, you know, we've been saying I can't breathe for years, right? just from environmental pollution, from the, the systemic racism and the structural racism. And so what it means to me is when I don't think about it in the terms under which he said it, I think it means we're taking a stand. I can't breathe because of police brutality. I can't breathe because for some reason, we know what most of the reasons are. I'm in a position where I'm more susceptible to this pandemic. I can't breathe because of climate change and what that entails and the stress that, le that comes from that. And I can't breathe because of environmental injustice. 
And if I can, Rev, just go back for a minute and talk about the law quickly, because you asked me a question as a lawyer and a scientist. And I just want to touch on the fact that under this administration, of course, science has been, there have been attempts to silence science. And I have to give kudos to scientists for not letting that happen, just, you know, fighting the battle regardless of what's going on. We know that there's a need for data for all those things I just mentioned, COVID-19, climate change, environmental justice, which, you know, we have some community science, scientific data that we need to recognize and accept as real because historic knowledge is the most powerful type of knowledge. And then from a legal perspective, what have we been seeing this last three and a half years? Rollbacks, um, lax laws, most recently, not most recently, but in the the, uh, recent past, EPA's decision to allow polluting facilities to continue with no oversight. How crazy is that? And who is that going to affect first? Communities of color, Black people, African Americans, right? So those are the things that make me angry. And then, you know, I can think about that as a lawyer and as a scientist, but as a Black woman, I don't have any kids, but I have three living brothers. I have a multitude of male friends. People didn't even understand the concept until I wrote about it, that I had to think deeply about when I sent my brother, uh, my brother in Alabama, uh, a face covering, right, so that he could protect himself because he's a frontline worker who was out of work because of COVID. And then they opened up, which I have another issue with. But um, I couldn't, was concerned, I couldn't send him a black mask or a dark brown mask, or a maroon mask, or anything dark color, because a black man covering up his face is an invitation for some confrontation, and which could lead to death. So, you know, little things like that, that are not little things for African Americans, right? And that we have to think about. And so the, the fear and the pain for my friends and my family and my cousins and uncles, you know, it's unfathomable. I can't even describe, I can, you understand what I'm talking about, but there are those who cannot, who never will understand it. And, and hopefully our children's children won't have to feel like this. Dr. Hollis, you mentioned the term syndemic. What, what does that mean actually? Okay. Yeah. One of my friends, uh, same, uh, Bernice Miller-Travert told me this new word and I get so excited learning, learning new words. So a syndemic is described as a set of linked health problems, right? That involve two or more issues, afflictions, whatever you want to call it, that interact together and contribute to an excess burden of disease in a specific population. And so it, it occurs when health-related problems cluster by person, place, or time. So let's look at that. So we have environmental pollution, right? Environmental injustice, which leads to health effects. We know that, adverse health effects, death. And then we have on top of that, climate change. And that affects us first and worst. We know that. And it leads to a number, a host of conditions, including some health conditions. And we have COVID-19, which, as I already mentioned, affects African-Americans at a rate that is much higher than any other population. And um, once a week, I I post in in Twitter what the numbers are in Maryland, because I'm always waiting for them to go down so that I could then justify going to Mobile to check on my mom, who's immunocompromised. They're going up. But um, for African-Americans, it's the highest, you know? And nobody's talking about that to my satisfaction. So that's three things, right? Environmental injustice, climate change, COVID-19, and finally, and most importantly, racism. 
because racism in and of itself leads to a number of adverse health effects. And all of these together, we're way beyond a syndemic, but that's the only name that I could find, you know, a set of link two or more. So we're at four. And I've seen it in the literature now. So I always congratulate Bernice on uh, introducing that word to me because I know I've been using it because it is the truth. Well, Bernice is also very powerful, and I'm, yes. and, and 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 I'm sure uh, if you all took the lineup, we have an amazing lineup uh, here on Think 100. percent You're gonna you're gonna hear from Bernice. Uh, she's been on before, but you're gonna hear from her again. Uh, she's and she's gonna do what everybody else has already been doing: blow blow the roof off in this in this process. And Dr. Hollis, she mentioned, if you want to follow Dr. Hollis on Twitter, you can definitely see that EJ Toxic Doc, uh, and you can get you get more information on what she's talking about regarding the epidemic and how there are multiple afflictions that are causing issues for our community um, in that regard, um, but also in your tweets, because you've been tweeting a good bit here. So I encourage people to follow Dr. Hollis and and listen and and hear what she's saying. But you shared uh, many tweets about tear gas being weaponized by police against protesters. So do you think it's being used to make protesters, um, you know, more uh, 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 to have the coronavirus, to be be more impacted by COVID-19? Do you think it's, in, I guess what I'm trying to say, do you think it's intentional? See, uh, so that's a loaded question. Let me say this. Um, everybody knows that COVID-19 affects African-Americans at a rate greater than other, other races. Um, tear gas was um, um, banned in 1929, I think, the first time. And because of what it does and how it attacks the respiratory system and the health effects it occurs. Now, if, if tear gas affects the health, your respiratory system, if your respiratory system is attacked by COVID-19, if Black people have a more sensitivity to COVID-19 because of the respiratory issues that they face because of environmental racism, and then you use tear gas on them, what would you conclude? So I, I have no evidence of that. I just have common sense. What, what are you speaking of the the folks who are in the streets as a part of the rebellion, um, who are risking their lives, in essence, saying that racism is a bigger cancer and needs to be addressed in COVID nineteen. Um, what, what are your What are your thoughts? In, in this in this moment, and I, let me actually add another layer to that. Um, in this moment, when there is um, an administration that is clearly picking the wounds of our of our pain, so for instance, this president um, is going to be gathering in his first rally for his want to be reelected is going to be gathering um, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, the place of the worst race riots, the place where our people were literally um, killed in horrific numbers um, in the race riots and be doing it on Juneteenth, the day that we celebrate 
as a part of our freedom and as a, a part to that where we we it wasn't that we received all we got freedom on that day, but just took that long to get to that point. And then he'll he's following it up by then going to that stamp of 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 in other words, the the symbol of we 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 are in charge here at Mount Rushmore, but also the place where Sitting Bull and many of those of our native brothers were definitely killed in a massacre as well on July 4th. And then he followed up that on the day that he moved the date, uh, literally to August 27th, the day before Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech, um, the day before actually Emmett Till was, was killed, um, a couple of days before the 15th anniversary of Katrina. But he moved it to August 27th to Florida, to a place that had one of the worst race riots in Florida on that day, um, on the 60th anniversary of that day. So clearly there's no mistake. There's like literally, uh-huh. there's no mistake in that. So as people are now literally saying enough is enough and raising up um, in rebellion fashion, what are your thoughts? As, as somebody who is, you know, has a both an, an academy perspective, but also a person who comes from Alabama perspective. Yeah. You know, I agree totally with you that it's clearly done purposefully, because how dare you celebrate Juneteenth? How dare you celebrate um, freedom when I'm trying to um, make America great again, which we all know is taken back to slavery? At least that's the way I interpret it. And I think that that and other actions, those are done to instigate us, just like the when uh, the protest the other night when when he unleashed the tear gas and everything on a, an um, um, a audience that was not being violent, it's that's what I wrote. I wrote this in a Twitter. I feel like that's what he hopes to happen. If people show up uh, in Tulsa where he is going to be, that he's going to use that as an opportunity to suppress to suppress us. So I, I'm all about protest and show up. Be safe and be smart, and be somewhere he's not. Because just like, you know, you're right, I am from Alabama, and I understand about um, um, tactics that are used to suppress the voice, and I feel like uh, this is a desperate move, because people are listening. Come on, worldwide attention? So this is what a desperate person does. You start grasping at things. So I'm going to go here and really piss them off. And you know what? Come. And celebrate with us the freedom, because nobody is ever going back to the way it was before. We always we're hoping for much better. We're planning for much better, and we're going to be a part of that. So, you know, if, as long as we don't, you know, respond to to his rhetoric and and to his efforts to to create reasons to use martial law, I think we're good. Keep you know, keep on keeping on. I know that's right. Come on, y'all. You listening to Dr. Adrian Howell's show? She, 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 she's in her. She's. I'm, I'm gonna have to add. You know, she's a scientist, a lawyer, a preacher. I'm gonna add preacher to that. To, to that. To, 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 uh, give, give her a D men to add to the JD and the PhD. I gotta add, add some more. Add some more letters to, <laughs> to her because she she bringing it. She bringing it right now. Oh man! And in that spirit of truth, let me let 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 let's let's. Let's transition home a little bit. Let's let's just talk about it. So before I get to the home and home meaning our own movement, um, what in your 
mindset is the is the parallel connection uh, link between racial justice and climate justice. Because of racism, we have issues around climate, and it, you know, I mean, we have issues about people being being vulnerable. Because you've put us in this situation, redlining, structural racism, not in my backyard. All of those things have put us here. So, yeah, racism is the cause of all of this thing, all of these things. That's the backbone of everything. You can't address one without addressing the other. But if you address racism, you're addressing the other. I know that's right. Listen, I'm clear on that. And and, um, what, what has been, I mean, I've seen... You know, we've seen some improvement um, from our own movement. And now that the conversation of systemic racism has reached the point, as you mentioned, of internationally forcing corporations and organizations to make statements. I mean, literally, I would have never thought if you had told me, you know, 2020 has been a while. I call 2020 a year of truth. It's been a wild year. So you had told me on that list of wildness to check the box that NASCAR is going to be banning Confederate flags. That wouldn't have been all. I mean, you know. So and we only we only at this point. So man, I, I mean, I'm I'm looking, but we're seeing how you know that because of this, people and movements are holding um, these entities accountable and measurable. So where do the big greens, for those who are listening, big greens are environmental organizations that have large budgets, large resources um, in around the part of the department makeup, which you may see is the, 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 the front line, the, the, the mainstream of the kind of movement. But in the front lines, they have many, 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 many organizations um, that are part of the movement. But the big greens are just the larger ones. I just want to make sure people are, are clear on that. But in these big greens, such as the one you work for right now, um, uh, where does, like, for instance, and you can speak about the, the one you work for or, just, or, or in general, but where does like your union of concerned scientists or others fit in? Well, they, I think they play a big role. Um, this is a time to look internally. When you said about NASCAR, I have to say, I turned on my TV the other day and I have a fire stick. And the first thing I saw, Amazon supports Black Lives Matter. And I was floored because I wasn't expecting that, right? But statements are one thing. Actions are another. And I think the time for just statements is long past. Put your, you know, as they say, put your money where your mouth is. I have to say that a lot of uh, organizations and groups um, are making great statements and and much appreciated support. But um, now is the time to put your money where your mouth is, so to speak. And for Big Greens, this is the, it's necessary. This is the time to look internally, to check yourself. You need to look at who's qualified and stop looking at race, right? But you also need to ask yourself, how many people of color do I have in this organization and why do I have so few? And was it purposeful, right? Was there some unconscious bias or was it deliberate? I don't know, but it's time to make some changes internally for sure. Let me a personal question on that, um, Dr. Hollis. You, you are clearly... Uh, brilliant. You are clearly bring everything that we would want within um, a climate organization, being a lawyer and a scientist. Um, you are a woman of color. Um, do you feel safe in these organizations? It's not safe as much as comfortable. 
You know what I mean? I feel like having uh, others around you who or someone, uh, groups to talk to who look like you, who understand what you've been through, that helps you, you know? And, and I, I feel like when you're um, not in a position where you can, where you're judged by your ability, then safety isn't something you can take for granted. No, professional safety. You know what I mean? So uh, in that regard, wow, I think if the particular environment has um, set you up to feel safe, then yes. Uh, for me, um, all I can say is we're working on it. <laughs> and I can't speak for our the people of color organization, but I can speak for what I'm seeing. And what I'm seeing is that, you know, we're working on it. It's it's late to the table, but I'm happy to see that people are seem to be willing to make necessary changes. Now, I don't know how far that's going to go or how, you know, the changes, but I just, the openness is appreciated, you know? You know how the people say they're safety in numbers? <laughs> no, no, that, that, well, that, well, that's, well, that's actually, you know, and, and so, I, I mean, thank you. I think the, we, we, we have this form. That's why, we, you know, we like Think 1% because we want this form where, you know, I think this would be helpful. And I've yeah. always appreciated so many people being so honest and candid. And, you know, I bring this up because we know, you know, recently there was um, an employee um, who left actually at Union Concerned Scientists and she wrote uh, a letter and it, it really kind of detailed that yeah. she, she didn't feel safe, right? And felt yeah. it was a hostile environment. And this, this has been documented, speaking of the data, um, Green yeah. 2.0, uh, by, it was done, led by the amazing Whitney Tome. And in that process detailed how particularly people of color are, you know, there aren't that many people of color in these organizations. And even after that was brought forth, the numbers got worse. I mean, it was just—it's amazing. It went literally, they—they—they—they they, they, they were in cities like D.C. and New York, and San Francisco, and somehow these organizations that are in predominantly black or brown cities got whiter. And I, I don't even know how you can, you can do that. I mean, I'm not, I mean, you, you got to work hard to do that. And so, so that was actually one of the things that was done. But that employee um, detailed about you know big greens and diversifying leadership and working in this in this space. And so I guess maybe if you want to, just kind of, as well as you can, just kind of speak to that. That's, that. that's something I think is important. And if you want to speak to what she was talking about. Yeah. And, and, you know, uh, thank you for that. And, um, you know, the letter is an open letter. And I know it's um, been, it's all over the country. And our, our EJ partners have it and, and other groups have access to it, you know. And uh, so it's no secret, right? And um, I think that the UCS, the administration, has put a statement on the on the website. Um, I can't speak to that, but I'll tell you, reading that letter, and I've heard this from a lot of my colleagues, both in and outside of UCS, right? Reading that letter, my initial thought was, did I write that? <laughs> you know, and 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 you know, and and I was at. I mean, this isn't the first big organ. Um, I don't, I don't know if you called ATS there a big green, but a white organization that I've been at, right? And the, some of the things she describes are things that we've lived, 
you know, as a as a as a race, as a people, you know, a person of color, and then specific to being an African American, and they resonated in a painful way. And I think a lot of people, especially the younger ones, oh my, my heart aches for them because they should not have to at such a young age, and and I say young because they're all younger than me, right? That they shouldn't have to go through this, and you know, that some of the things that I've been through and others that I know have been through. They're too young. They're, they shouldn't have to experience this and be disillusioned so so soon, you know, where they've worked so hard and they're the primary breadwinners for their family. But Ruth is her name. Ruth Slutter, um, I can't speak to her experiences because, you know, one of the things that <laughs> touched me is, is that, when, you know, we recently had a, a just a get together and somebody said, just to see these black faces, I didn't even know all of y'all worked here. I didn't know it either. And it's about 18 people, maybe. And um, because we're in different areas, right? And so reading that letter, I think a lot of people had similar reactions. It just resonated. Parts of it resonated. I think that nobody expected it to become as big as it is. And I hope that it's not just UCS that is taking stock but that other big green organizations use that letter as a flag for what they're going through, because it's not just specific, right, to UCS. This is what we see in big green organizations, white organizations, where you have people of color and and African-Americans who are more than qualified, but are not put in those positions where that can be utilized. So her... The letter, and I encourage people to read it, the pain in that letter that I saw in that letter anyway, because I can't speak for her. I'm, it was so very well written. You know, I have to say that first. It was, it was so eloquent and just so clear. And it was obvious she spent time writing it and she was writing it from the heart. And I just respect that. And I emailed her and told her that because uh, she said things a lot of people were too afraid to say, including me. And, you know, so that... I feel bad about that, you know, being cowardly in that regard. But yeah, so, I mean, part of that is the fear of reprisal and reaction. And I think now in this time that we're in around racism in general, there's no time for fear because what we're going through is this microcosm of a bigger thing. You know, it's racism at the macro level and the micro level, micro being at, at an organization. And all of it has to change. And, it, you know, you have to change from within. And it, takes, it may take small changes to create big changes, but it's got to happen. And not just at, at big green organizations, but at corporations and at white universities and other places where we have traditionally been kept out. Open the door, you know. Because we should be there. And the funny thing is, you know, we have people, um, I know people who speak multiple languages that aren't even utilized for that capability. Like we could be doing so much more, but it's just a fear. I think there's a fear of um, African-Americans or a fear of people of color. I'm not sure of our indigenous brothers and sisters. I'm not sure what it is, but I know that now is the time for change and there's no going back. You know, uh, last week we had Dr. Mildred McLean on. You mentioned earlier how much she meant to you um, and, you know, your opportunity to work with her at the Harambe House, um, taking your former uh, FAMU students with you and just engaging with her and how much she 
as she helps steer your life direction. But when we talked with her, um, she mentioned the solution um, for what you just talked about was love. Do you believe that? You know, I do believe that, but I have to add to it. It's, and maybe, maybe, maybe it's one that leads to the other, but respect, right? Because you need to respect me as a person. And I feel like, for example, with police, they don't think of black people as people. Apparently not, because you treat them like animals. You're going to hunt somebody down in the street? So before you can love them, you have to see them as an equal. And, and that's where the respect comes in. You treat them the way you want to be treated. So when people say, I don't know how to talk to black people, how do you want people to talk to you? Because that's no different. I want you to treat me the same way you'd want one of your brothers or sisters or yourself to be treated. And from that, we can develop a sense of love. And there are people that I adore at UCS. I do, you know, and uh, that comes because of mutual respect. So I agree with her, but I just want to add to it. Well, you know, as we kind of come to the end of this conversation, you know, um, Dr. Hollis, I I can't thank you enough for, um, and I just, you know, hope that you, you continue to hold up what you're doing. You know, I guess I guess one of my one of my and my my last couple of questions here is, um, you know, what 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 keeps you motivated? Yeah, well, what keeps me motivated is that doing the right thing is that knowing this is the right thing. You know what I mean? And and being tired, just like everybody else, of being treated as less than. When I know that's not true, all the fabulous people I've met, that's just nonsense. And so what keeps me motivated is knowing that this is the right thing to do. It's the only thing to do, you know, and I wish I could do more, but it's the only thing to do. You know what keeps me motivated? When I read on Twitter, um, what you write and others write and, and read what you're sharing and the information and the messages. And I, I'd love to retweet that and, and maybe make a comment because those things are deep. And so what motivates me is everybody else's energy and especially the young people. Oh my goodness. You know, just listening to them and, and feeling their anger. I'm happy um, that they're excited and energized, but I'm sad that they have to be that way, you know, but that's, those are the things that motivate me. So Dr. Hollis, I want to give you this last opportunity here to actually speak to them. Actually. Um, um, If you could gather all of them in a room, a big, big room, if you could talk to them directly and yeah. talk to them where you are now, this what would those words be? Wow, that's a that's a deep question. Um, some of the first thing I would say is, you know, we see you, uh, we do, and um, those of us who struggled, uh, who are still struggling um, for the very things you're fighting for, uh, what you know, what you re- need to realize is that. This is a fight that we've been fighting for so long. And because of you, um, we have an opportunity, or as Dr. Jacoby Wilson says, the invisible has become visible. And, you know, we want to, you know, we, we want to work together in unity. And we think that I feel like we can learn from the youth and they can learn from us. And I, I love it when I see us working together, but I just want them to know that we see you and I want to say thank you and keep up the fight. And I realize that it shouldn't be like this, but this is where we are right now. And hopefully it won't continue 
you know, much longer, but, you know, stay, let's stay in it together. Powerful. That was Dr. Adrian Hollis, PhD, JD, and I just gave her a D-min because she was preaching. She was preaching. <laughs> my grandfather. <laughs> no, no doubt about it. And if folks want to find you on Twitter, give them that uh, your yes, Twitter handle again. Yes, my Twitter handle is ejtoxicdoc, at ejtoxicdoc, T-O-X-I-C-D-O-C. And what else, if you want to poke to this to, to find you or get in contact, what else? Or shout out. This, this is your shout out moment. Oh, right well, here. you can find me on Facebook, um, Delta Law. Um, and of course, you can find me at my work email, ahollis at ucsusa.org. And um, if you leave me a message, I'll call you back. Powerful. At the house, thank you um, for who thank you are. You. And uh, we will keep on. Keep I, on. I have to say before we go that I appreciate what you're doing and having people on here to have a voice in this movement because it's important for others to hear and learn and for us to learn. So I appreciate you. Like what you heard on this episode? Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Follow us at Think100Climate and at Hip Hop Caucus on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Visit thecoolestshow.com where you can take action for climate justice right now. You can also learn more about this podcast and donate to Think 100% which is a non-profit project. Thank you for listening and all power to the people.